Anyone got a good dictionary definition that they can tell us? Just trajectory, quickly. The flight path of an object from its launch to its resting place. Sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? Um, yeah, the one I looked at in dictionaries is the path followed by an object moving under given forces. It's the, it's the pathway that we travel. And we call these conferences and have been calling them for four or five years now trajectory because we're looking at the trajectory of our lives. Now, we can see in hindsight fairly clearly where I've come from, I can write up. We'd like to see where I'm going to. We'd like to see the trajectory laying out in front of us because one of the forces of our trajectory is ourselves. We make choices, we make decisions, we, we make efforts to, to achieve certain things, to go certain ways. And so we'd like to know that, but in our life there is an interplay of any number of forces that get us to be doing what we wind up doing. Our family, they launch us off in a particular direction, don't they? And then our friends and our culture, our, our education, the circumstances of life, the trajectory you can have in one generation is not available in another. Or, And so, of course, the great circumstance of life that's hit our trajectories this year, of course, is the, is the pandemic. That where we're all sure we were going somewhere, we're not so sure at all. We didn't think we'd be sitting here uh, having trajectory here. We actually planned to have it down at a conference centre. We planned to be away for a weekend. Now we're going to cram everything into one day so as to give you headaches. We're, we're going to be going through lots of material very quickly because, well, we can't do what we were planning to do because the trajectory's been intervened by the circumstances of life. But in our many kinds of interventions that happen changing our trajectory, Christians know the great force that lies behind our lives and our trajectory is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who by his spirit is transforming us into Christ-likeness of character and nature. And by the spirit of God, using the word of God, brings about a great transformation, rebirth in the first place, but continuing transformation by the renewal of our minds so that we might become like the Lord Jesus. All of which explains the topic for this uh, today's trajectory, why we're talking about the word of the future and the future of the word. I want to show you this year how God is working his purposes out by his word. For his word tells us the future, and by telling us the future, he actually explains to us what he's done in the past. The future and what it involves and what it includes is the work of God and is the work of the word of God. So we're going to talk about the word of the future and we're going to talk about the future of the word. And we'll do it by going back into the Old Testament this morning and or before lunch and into the New Testament this afternoon after lunch. Behind these studies and talks and discussions that we're going to have are a couple of key assumptions that we take for granted a little too easily. One is that history is linear. There is a beginning, there is a progress, there is an end. And two, that God is in control. That is, history is not circular, history is not meaningless. 
history actually has a beginning in the creation of the world and an end in the judgment of the world. And we are going somewhere. We're not going nowhere, as the atheists believe, nor are we going around and around in cycles, going absolutely nowhere except repeating and reincarnating, as Eastern mysticism would teach us. But we have the basic assumption of Western civilization, which comes out of Judaic Christian, out of the Bible, that there is a beginning and there is an end, and we're in the middle, en route. The second thing is that God is in control of this whole program. He is working his purposes out for the world and for us, for you and for me individually. He, he has brought coronavirus into the world. You thought it was the Chinese, you thought it was the CIA, you thought it was all kinds of other people, but it was actually God who did it. He's brought it into the world and he's bringing it for his purposes for us warning us to stop and consider the choices we're making, warning us to stop and consider the wrongness of the way the world is going, stop and consider the judgment of death that suddenly comes upon us much sooner than we were expecting, much more commonly than we were expecting, as if universal phenomenon is not common. But notice how few people are talking about God in this pandemic. They're talking about medicine, they're talking about government, they're talking about vaccines, they're talking about research, they're talking, but they're not talking about God. No one actually wants to own up and say God is in control and has sent this to us. It's just not politically correct to say it, which is why you love to come to trajectory. You never can assume that political correctness is going to be spoken in this context, are you? Now, we're not spending much time today on the pandemic, and we can't ignore it, especially on a subject like trajectory and our own selves at the moment, but we're looking at the much bigger picture of God at work in his trajectory for the world, for his world, and God at work in his trajectory for your life, which, if you've given it to him, is again his life. So let's go way back into the Old Testament and look at the psalm that Zoe read for us just a little while ago, Psalm 89, which carries twin concepts that run all through the Old Testament of steadfast love and faithfulness. These two little Hebrew words keep popping up all over the Old Testament, steadfast love and faithfulness. They're the key summary points of the very character of God. God is loving and faithful. Those two key characteristics. So look at the opening of the verse in the psalm there. Verse 1, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever with my mouth. I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up, will be built up forever in the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. The two themes right there in the first two verses said in each of those verses. And then he speaks of a covenant that he has made. You've said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn by date to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Verses one to four sets out what the psalm is about. The psalm is speaking of God's character in the heavens and of his plan and, and promises on earth that centre on David. Now, verses 5 to 18 tells us 
that God rules in heaven. I'm not going to read all the psalm again, of course, but pick out a few verses to show the point. God rules in heaven. Uh, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? You'll notice the Lord is there in uppercase each time because in the Hebrew, the name of God is there. It's actually Yahweh who is in praise amongst the heavens, that no one is really like him. His might and his power are over all creation and is praised because he's the creator of all things who rules over all things. Look down at verse 11. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. But notice how he reigns. Notice the character. His character determines how he reigns. Verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. He is all-powerful, but it's not his power by which he reigns. He reigns by righteousness and justice because he is by nature love and faithfulness. God's power is, is absolute, but not amoral. It's absolute, but not irrational, irrational or non-rational. God is not fickle. He's not arbitrary, just making up rules that he, he actually, with his absolute power and his absolute rule, he is by nature faithful and loving. And so he rules in righteousness and justice. Here, my friends, is the basis of our Christianized civilization and hopefully in some ways the basis of your own personal ethics, the basis of our own moral and personal lifestyle. See, we value the rule of law, of justice and of righteousness and of morality, but we know where it comes from. It comes from God and his love and faithfulness. That lies at the heart of our universe, because it lies at the heart of our God. And it lies and should lie at the heart of any society that will be just and righteous, because it's expressing in its laws love and faithfulness. And you and I, we must be committed to the steadfast love of God. We must be people of grace, generosity, mercy, pardon, love concern for the weak and the feeble and the frail. And we must be committed to the faithfulness of God. We must be people who are trustworthy, reliable, dependable. The people who give our word and keep our word because we can be relied upon because we are faithful to keep our word like God himself. It's, it's kind of not sexy and it's pretty on the boring side to be a person of just such love and faithfulness, but it's what makes society work. It's what makes family life work. It's what makes your life work to be that kind of person who is a person of faithfulness and love. Put those two things together and you've comprehended the essence of what true morality, justice, righteousness society would be all about. But from verse 19, the psalmist turns his attention to what God has promised on earth. 
of old, you've spoken a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I've exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, and with my holy oil, I've anointed him. The word anointed means Messiah, Christ. I've appointed him as the Christ, as the Messiah, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. So we're told that this was part of the, the theme of the psalm right back in verses 3 and 4. And this is a psalm that reflects on 2 Samuel 7, where God made these promises by Nathan the prophet to King David himself. 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're not going to look at that now, but that's where you can find it, where God made the promises to David. But they're being summarised for us here in, say, verses 34 to 37. I will not violate my covenant. Uh, covenant means contract, means solemn promise and agreement. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. All through these verses, then, you will see the basis of the promises is the character of God steadfast love and faithfulness. Take a moment quickly, look through those verses from verses 19 to 37, see how many times you can see faithfulness and steadfast love referred to. Just to skim your eye down there. Okay, who can see one? Call out the verse number, I'll read it. Who's got? Sorry? 24. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn, his strength, be exalted. Yes? Where else? Sorry? 28. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. Yes? 33, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. You see, the promises of God come out of the character of God and fundamental to the character of God, love and faithfulness. That is what he's like. Because God is all-powerful, the ruler of the world, he's able to make things happen. There you get that in verses 5 to 18. Because of his love, he has chosen David. And because God is faithful to his promises, he has promised David and he will keep David. And David's son will always rule on David's throne. But it all relies upon God's word. He has spoken, verse 19. Made a contract, a covenant in verse 28. He won't violate that covenant in verse 34. Verse 35 is very powerful, isn't it? Verse 35, once for all I've sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. <laughs> God is the very opposite of Satan, isn't he? Satan, Jesus says, is the father of lies. And when he lies, he speaks his natural word. But God 
speaks truth. And the word truth is the same word for faithfulness, actually. It's the same concept. He speaks trustworthy. You can rely upon it. You can depend upon it. The Lord is faithful and loving. The Lord is powerful and in control. The Lord is righteous and just. He's given his word and you can trust that he will keep his word. Nothing will be able to thwart his plans because he's powerful. And nothing will ever be able to pervert his promises because he's faithful. With God's word, we can therefore understand the past as to how it's happened. So I can tell you what's happened in my past, but I don't necessarily understand it. But God's word will give me the understanding of it as well. And I will know what the future holds because God speaks about what he's going to do in the future. And therefore, I'll know how to live in the present. In the light of the past and of the future, I can know the present. The faithful and loving ruler of the universe is working his purposes out and has given us his word, explaining and foretelling his plans. So what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> what, could, what could go wrong in the future if God is in control and has told us what it's all about? 